When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. It's a hot summer day in June. I'm standing on a sidewalk in Syracuse, New York, chatting with Michael DeSalvo and Nick Orth. We're right in front of their home, a three-story Victorian house that's been lovingly maintained. The elaborate wood trim is painted shades of teal and summer squash. Flecks of green and robin's egg blue dot wooden spindles near the railing. It's immediately clear that this house is a special place planted on an otherwise unremarkable block on the north side of Syracuse. So I'm just, do you want us to wear masks? Um, are you vaccinated? Yep. We're back. Oh, don't worry about okay. it. Yeah, we're good. Cool. Okay. We're good. As we make our way in, I'm struck by the religious artwork hung all over the walls. Yes, beautiful. Icons of the Virgin Mary in ornate faux gold frames, Celtic crosses, saints whose names and images I don't immediately recognize. Just opposite the front door is a wall painted a deep red, covered with rows and rows of small, brightly colored ceramic plaques. A few photos hang in between, now dated pictures of young men. Yeah, they all have a story. Thank God we have this, because truly there's times where I just have to go to the wall and just remember. Beginning in 1992, Michael and Nick invited people with AIDS to move into their home. People who didn't have anywhere else to go who were often just days or weeks away from death. This ministry started almost by accident. I went to go cut his hair, and it was an all-too-familiar scene when I got there. Michael had a chance encounter with a friend of a friend, a man named David. He was alone, he was filthy, he was really abandoned and neglected, and he was really emaciated. And he could barely sit in the chair, he couldn't stand up for a shower, he had wasting syndrome. I mean, he was pretty a mess. Michael and Nick were in a new relationship. They had just moved into the house together. They were still unpacking. But Michael looked around, looked at David, and he knew he had to do something. So it just came out of my mouth. I said, do you want to um, come home with me? And he said, yes. And I was like, we're in boxes, and <laughs> I haven't even talked to Nick. So I asked Michael what drove him to make such a generous offer. I think what was going through my mind was... Uh, just what was in front of me. Like, how do you not respond to that? It was obvious that he was alone and so broken and so weak. And, you know, yeah, he was just, should not be alone. Michael and Nick met at an anti-war protest. They were both active in the Catholic worker movement a peace and labor organization founded in 1933 by Dorothy Day and Peter Morin. The Catholic Worker started out as a radical newspaper during the Great Depression. Then volunteers began feeding and housing poor and working-class people. Eventually, the movement expanded throughout the country, opening what it called Houses of Hospitality. When Michael and Nick bought their home in Syracuse, they had years of experience volunteering at Catholic Worker Houses. But they never exactly planned that their new home would become one. 
After David died, it wasn't long before Nick and Michael welcomed another guest with AIDS, and then another, and another. Their new home was turning into a Catholic worker house. To make it official, at least as official as it can be in a movement that is intentionally anarchist, they needed a unique name, something that made their house of hospitality distinct from the other Catholic worker houses. But what to call it? Nick went on a retreat to Philly with the Toronto Catholic workers were there. And he called me up and said, we have a name for the house, Friends of Dorothy, Catholic worker. For gay men of a certain age, asking if another man is a friend of Dorothy is a coded way of finding out if he's gay, a tongue-in-cheek reference to Judy Garland's most famous character. And it was like a double entendre for, you know, Dorothy Day and for Dorothy from The Wizard of Oz. It was just like perfect. So we became friends of Dorothy. I just, when he said that, I said, oh, that's perfect. <laughs> Catholic worker houses were places where the poor and the marginalized could find community. They were always welcome, all friends of Dorothy. But the HIV and AIDS crisis in the 1980s and 90s created a new, doubly marginalized group of people gay men who had contracted the virus. It was a crisis that would test the movement's understanding and commitment to radical hospitality and cause divisions in some houses. But it also led to the creation of the Friends of Dorothy Catholic Worker House. From America Media, I'm Michael O'Loughlin. This is Plague, untold stories of AIDS in the Catholic Church. As someone who's gay and Catholic, I wanted to learn how people before me have managed this sometimes difficult identity. No time in modern history has been more volatile for gay Catholics than the height of the AIDS epidemic. So I've spent the last few years interviewing people who were right in the middle of it, people who fought, worked, and grieved through it. This is a special bonus episode of Plague that we're releasing to mark the publication of my new book, Hidden Mercy. The book goes deeper into the stories you've heard in Plague and covers new ground too. I hope you'll order a copy. And of course, all the great stories you've heard in Plague are made possible only because of the generosity of our listeners. I hope you'll consider becoming part of the American Media family by becoming a digital subscriber. That's the best way to support Plague and all our podcasts. Visit americamagazine.org slash subscribe. What a blessing to be here, Catholic Worker Center, Mary House. What a blessing. The Friends of Dorothy House in Syracuse is one of at least a handful of Catholic worker houses that sprang up in the 1990s to serve people with AIDS. There was one in Oakland, California, another in Chicago, a couple in Iowa. While each house has its own unique history, they all have one thing in common. They drew their inspiration from a woman born at the end of the 19th century, someone who had battled bishops and priests and yet remained a loyal daughter of the church. We began talking about what makes for peace, and that is the teaching in the Gospels, the Beatitudes, the Sermon on the Mount, and so on. A woman who was accused of being a communist but never deviated from her faith in Jesus. A person whom one historian I interviewed called the saint our society needs most today. 
someone whose life captivates even the Pope. She was able to bring together head and heart and soul and body. That person is Dorothy Day. When I started researching how Catholic workers responded to HIV and AIDS, I knew a little about Dorothy, but much less about the movement she started. I've interviewed Catholic workers arrested for protesting nuclear weapons. I visited some of the soup kitchens they run. I even got to see the headquarters of the newspaper she started, The Catholic Worker. It's still sold today for just a penny. So when I started out, I expected this would be a fairly straightforward story. Dorothy Day died in 1980, just as the HIV and AIDS crisis began. In the 1980s and 90s, people with HIV and AIDS were among the most despised in society, especially gay people. And the Catholic worker served the most marginalized. So it seemed inevitable that the Catholic worker movement would respond to the AIDS crisis. But I wasn't entirely right. As I've learned throughout my reporting on AIDS in the Catholic Church, there is never anything inevitable about ministries that have been welcoming and kind to LGBT people. Take Michael and Nick, committed Catholics literally living out the gospel, feeding the hungry, sheltering the homeless, visiting the sick, burying the dead, work undertaken inside their own home. Even they couldn't find much support from other Catholics early on. I mean, being gay Catholic workers during that time, it wasn't like churches were out there ready to embrace us and support us. You know, I remember I went through the phone book and was calling all the Catholic churches to see if they would help us and support us. Um, one sent us $20 a month, and a priest said, I'll send you some money, but I don't want anyone to know I'm doing that. Catholic workers are radicals, and they were often at odds with the wider Catholic community. What Michael and Nick didn't expect, though, was that even their fellow radicals weren't ready to accept them as a gay Catholic couple or support their work. Let's start with Dorothy Day. The Pope introduced her as the servant of God, Dorothy Day. It means that she's officially on her way to becoming a saint. She protested war and she fought for unions and she was a pacifist. Anybody who knew her, the primary thing you remember about her characteristic was her laughter and how funny she was. If your brother is hungry, you feed him. You don't meet him at the door and say, go be thou filled or wait for a few weeks and you'll get a welfare check. You sit him down and feed him. One of America's most famous and beloved and controversial true radicals, Dorothy Day. She is the greatest anomaly imaginable. My name is John Lokery. I'm a biographer. That's the co-author of the book, Dorothy Day, Dissenting Voice of the American Century. What is religion to most people? It's go to church on Sunday. It's feel you belong to a denomination to be a good person. You know, write a check for this, that, or the other thing. For Dorothy and for Peter Morin, that wasn't it by a long shot. It had to be transformative of your whole life. It had to be radical. People wanting religion to be about comfort and security and some kind of insurance policy about your life. All of that being horrifying to her. Dorothy wasn't always so religious, especially as a young woman. She was a very hard-drinking woman. Um, she was a fairly libidinous person. She was your typical 19-year-old um, bohemian in Greenwich Village golden at the time. Mm -hmm. Of Greenwich Village, what was that golden age? The years leading up to World War I, it bloomed as, as an art neighborhood and as a bohemian neighborhood. Dorothy moves to New York to practice journalism, befriends playwrights and artists, and writes for socialist newspapers like The Liberator, work that puts her at odds with police and other people in power. 
She has an affair and has an abortion. She parties and rabble-rouses. She eventually finds her way into churches. Even though she wasn't raised in a religious home, she wants to understand what drew these working-class people into ornate churches. Why did they spend their time sitting quietly, listening to a priest whisper in Latin? She was writing feverishly about the poor, yet this part of their lives seemed cut off to her. So she decides to join them, and then something clicks. She becomes Catholic herself. With its formulaic rituals and clear moral teachings, the church at the time was viewed by some people as floating too high above the messiness of the world. Dorothy wanted to remind people, including her fellow Catholics, that there is a rich Catholic tradition of fighting for the poor. So she starts her own newspaper, The Catholic Worker. And it began through the, the efforts of Peter Morin, a French peasant, who was a former teacher in the Christian Brothers schools in Paris, who felt a call to come to America and be part of the, really build up a lay apostolate. And he came to me because he read articles that I'd written about the social order and suggested we start the Catholic Worker newspaper. She and her co-founder, Peter Morin, decide to open a house of hospitality, a place where people rejected by society can live and eat and feel human again. It is a place for anyone who is in need to come and stay with no judgments, nothing asked of you. Stay for the night if you need a shelter. Stay for your life if it has to be that way. And that we are here to help you, that we're here to feed you. We're not here to proselytize. We're not here to teach you how you should act. We're here simply to open our doors for you. This focus on hospitality would become the hallmark of Catholic worker houses. And it wasn't always easy work. Picture a place opening, and it's filled with what we call bag ladies. Okay, they don't smell good. They'll steal anything you put down. They're not pleasant or polite people. They are manifestations of Jesus. They are part of God. Dorothy travels the country, giving talks and interviews. She engages with the issues of the day, raises awareness about the movement, and helps resolve disputes at local houses. Like many radical Christians, she's hard to categorize. I wouldn't even say she's quite a socialist. She's a little more of an anarchist. But she does believe that competition and free enterprise are inherently dangerous. So she's a great critic of capitalism, and certainly with the left wing, in terms of her opposition to all wars, she urges men to dodge the draft during the Vietnam War. She's willing to go to jail uh, when, in terms of the arms race. So she's very left wing on some things. But on social issues, Dorothy is much more traditional. So, for instance, um, sexual matters, not only abortion, but homosexuality, masturbation, premarital sex, et cetera, et cetera, all of which were a part of her youth in one way or another though she is fairly conservative on. It's likely Dorothy would have been friends with many gay men during her bohemian youth. The crowd she ran in were open and accepting. But by the 1970s, Dorothy laments how young people seem to be relaxing traditional sexual norms. She also has issues with the burgeoning gay rights movement. She writes in her diary that her heart was troubled by the fact that this practice of unnatural sex is now being proclaimed from the housetops in America. When confronted with questions of sexual morality, Dorothy would quote St. Paul, his letter to the Ephesians, let these things be not so much mentioned among you. It's a nice line. So that's like a classier way of saying, don't ask, don't tell. She may not have wanted to talk about homosexuality, 
But Dorothy did show kindness to gays and lesbians, sometimes even in the face of prejudice from other volunteers. John recalled one story, a young man who had been a Catholic worker. He had been there before, then went off and got married, then got divorced when he realized he was gay. And he comes in to the house. He wants to come back now in his 20s and work there. And he tells her, but I have to, you have to know I'm, I'm gay. She just looks at him and says, I love you and feels we don't need to talk about it anymore. My love for you is the paramount thing. She was very much in favor of don't ask, don't tell long before Bill Clinton came on the scene. But a don't ask, don't tell policy also creates problems. Some people are living there with, um, you know, under a certain kind of tension and that they're living a gay life in the village. They know Dorothy doesn't want to know about it. And yet they're devoted to the work and the, the Christian spirit that Dorothy has promoted. So there are tensions. Uh, there are tensions that way. After the break, how the Catholic worker confronts those tensions. I'm trying to think, like, well, how do I unite these two? How, how do I be honest about being gay and still be a Catholic? How do I do this? And so that really kind of set the stage for why I decided to spend that time in New York. This is Carl Cicillano. He moved into the St. Joseph Catholic Worker House in New York at a unique time in its history. Dorothy had died just a few years earlier, and the community was struggling to figure out how, or even if, the Catholic worker movement would continue. Carl had experienced a dramatic religious conversion when he was younger and had even considered religious life. I, I just had this sense of immensity and I was maybe in ecstasy, but I was also sort of terrified. But as a gay man, he struggled to find a place in the church. So when he learned that a number of other gay and lesbian people had found fulfillment in the Catholic worker community, he decided to explore. I was fascinated to see how they had figured out how to reconcile such opposing identities, because at the time I had no idea how to do that. He made a visit and... And you know, the first thing that they wanted to know was like what I thought about homosexuality, what I thought about the church and homosexuality. And you know, I was just like, what, what, what? <laughs> why are you asking me these questions? They explained that it was like this burning issue in the community, that there were folks in the community who were really pushing that the New York City Catholic worker, which had always stood on the side of the oppressed, should stand with the LGBT community as like, you know, AIDS was happening. Though a bit confused at first by the energy being devoted to the question of homosexuality, Carl was encouraged that the conversation was even happening. There were a number of people in the worker that were really pushing the, the community to acknowledge and be honest about the fact that for years and years and years, so many Catholic workers had been, had been gay. One of the Catholic workers pushing for this conversation was a woman named Peggy Schur. I wrote for the paper for 11 of the 12 years I was there. Peggy had been a managing editor of the newspaper, and she had known Dorothy pretty well. I worked with Dorothy for the last six years of her life. Um, and then I was there for another six years. My relationship with Dorothy was sort of businesslike. I was someone she felt she could rely on, and I was glad to be reliable. I was in New York, but I had visited many houses. And in New York in particular, there was basically a don't ask, don't tell policy. Where did that sort of unwritten code or policy come from? Oh... 
you just learned it by observation, by people's responses. Um, it was just in the air. I don't know how to describe it better. Though it sounds odd in 2021, Peggy thinks Dorothy was actually trying to be kind with this policy. Though she said it didn't always feel that way to the people who were forced to hide important parts of their lives. It's sad, but in an odd way, Don't Ask, Don't Tell was probably more progressive than was the case in other Catholic institutions. She was welcoming enough that many gay and lesbian people stayed for years and were very active in the ways they could be, which I think is wonderful. But there was a tension that people couldn't be fully embraced for themselves. Following Dorothy's death, people like Peggy tried to initiate a different conversation. But it wasn't easy. I stayed there for six years after her death. And a number of people who were pretty forceful in their views and adamant in their views didn't want to do anything differently than Dorothy would have done them which made it very difficult when new situations arose because if those situations or challenges hadn't existed during Dorothy's life, we couldn't deal with them. According to some people now, others of us saw life after Dorothy differently. Carl had joined around this time. Even though he was fairly new to the group, he decided to speak up during a heated meeting. On one side, There were some workers who had known Dorothy well and wanted to respect her don't ask, don't tell approach. But Carl didn't have the weight of all that history on his shoulders. When he was called on to speak. I said, the Catholic worker is a radical witness to the primacy of love in the Gospels. We are not bishops. We're not tasked with guarding orthodoxy. Our task is to witness to love you know, to embody love, to be love, and to show the revolutionary force of love in our world. And we can either become a Dorothy Day museum and restrict ourselves to like, you know, the vision of of Dorothy as it was expressed during her time, or we can move forward. Carl ran through a litany of abuses gay men were experiencing as HIV and AIDS was upending their lives. Bishops throughout the country fought against gay civil rights measures. Gay Catholic groups were banned from meeting on church property. The Vatican even released a letter condemning homosexuality. And yet, there were some Catholics ministering to people with AIDS, often under the radar. But for the Catholic worker movement, the question remained, how do you apply the principles Dorothy lived by to a situation she never encountered? Dorothy was absolutely remarkable in her ability to see what needed to be done to live true to the Gospels in her time. This is a different time. People are dying of AIDS. Gay people are being beaten up in the streets. Gay people are being treated as utter pariahs. And and, and the gospel, Christ, has to stand with the pariah. And if the Catholic worker is not able to do that, then something is dying here. Memories have faded. There are still disagreements over who said what. And some Catholic workers prefer not to revisit this time in too much detail. But Peggy and Carl confirmed at least a few concrete instances in which gay and lesbian Catholic workers were made to feel less than welcome. One time, the newspaper refused to run a letter from a gay man. Another time, an openly gay Catholic worker was denied a leadership role in the community. These things hurt Carl. For me, the the Catholic worker represented the heart of the church. And so to see the Catholic worker kind of rupture and mutilate itself 
And to see these acts of cruelty and exclusion was heartbreaking. That cruelty and that rejection was coming from the heart of what I saw as the best of the church. It was especially devastating. these huge parties with 900 of their closest friends. <laughs> <laughs> so that's how we, how we Back in Syracuse at the Friends of Dorothy Catholic Worker House, Michael and Nick have invited over a handful of friends. They have been involved with the house over the past several decades. We weren't planning on a meal, but... Well, culturally, being Italian, you don't leave without eating. Nick's grilled chicken and prepared a salad. There's a giant tray of Italian pastries and cookies in the middle of the table. <laughs> I go, let's just do the Lord's Prayer. The reunion has a festive feel, even if the conversation runs heavy at times. Nice try, fellas. <laughs> and every time he'd see me, he would In the early days, most of Nick and Michael's guests were gay men. As HIV became more widespread in the community, they welcomed others into the house as well, including many women of color who had nowhere else to turn. One of these mornings... It won't be very long. You will look for me, and I'll be gone. I'm going to a place where there is nothing, nothing else to do but just walk around, walk around heaven. All day. That's Yovanda Tucker. She's been friends with Michael and Nick since the day she moved into their home, shortly after learning she had breast cancer and HIV. When I was here, I was so, I was just afraid. I was up here by myself, and they freely opened their home to me. And that, that touched me because I was in the hospital, and (laughs) they came into my room. And he said, hi, I'm Nick, and we're friends of Dorothy. And we come, we come to help you and bring you into my home to help you get through this cancer. Well, my mother's name was Dorothy, and she passed away just recently. So when they came and said, we're friends of Dorothy, I just broke down in tears because I didn't know what they was talking about. I thought they were talking about my mother, you know. And, <laughs> you know. And from that point, they were my guardian angels from that point, you know, and it was like, well, thank you. Michael and Nick made sure their hospitality was available to anyone who needed it. Let me pay you, you know, what will you charge me? What can I give you? They was like, you don't give us anything. They was like, save your money. This emphasis on hospitality was the driving force behind everything Michael and Nick did. That eventually included Sunday dinners, which started off small but grew into big events, serving as fundraisers for the house. A lot of stuff was around food and music and, you know, not being so heavy all the time. This was like the haven just to come on Sundays to have dinner. We used to do Sunday dinner, like grandma's house, you know, and 20 people would show up, 23 people, you know, and it was just the place for them to go and be safe and not have to worry about the stigma and relax and feel apart and not separate or not different or, you know, sharing 
a, a hit off of a drink with someone or something. You know, people were crazy. People were totally freaked out about so much. So this was a place for people that were sick to feel comfortable. And while Michael and Nick did everything in their power to destigmatize spaces, they still faced plenty of it themselves. The Christians didn't want us because we were gay, and the gays didn't want us because we were Christians. Did you struggle with that at all? Of course. How so? Well, it wasn't ideal. It would have been much nicer to find acceptance. But in a strange way, the lack of support from the church and the wider gay community freed Michael and Nick. You know, I remember my friend Jackie Allen from The Catholic Worker in Connecticut said, if you're doing good work, like, what are they going to do to you? So I think we disarmed a lot of people by our good work. The work didn't leave a lot of time for Michael and Nick to worry about the prejudice they experienced in the church. When you are taking care of people that are dying, a lot of pretense is gone. And so you get the real deal with people. And um, it's just about love. They don't need, we're not trying to save people on their deathbeds or anything like that. We just love them and treat them with kindness and respect and give them dignity, you know? With their ministry taking off, Nick and Michael began receiving invitations from local Catholic leaders to talk about their experiences. The work spoke for itself. But who would speak up for them? You know, you expect more out of the peace community and everything. I remember once we were invited to speak at a retreat, but we weren't allowed to stay together, so I said, we're not coming. Michael felt that other Catholics respected their ministry, but didn't accept them. It was constantly educating people as to how to treat us as a couple, how to, like, just little things along the years, like getting a picture taken for an event thing. They'd want us separate. No, 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 together. I would always insist, no, we get our picture taken together. You demand the respect, demand a place at the table. We did it for others. We didn't need to be stroked by the church at all. It was really about opening up the doors for others. Michael's ability to advocate so fiercely for others came from fighting his own battles early on. I remember at nine years old thinking of how I could kill myself because I knew I was different, not understanding. I was called a faggot before I ever knew what one was. So I think you do two things with that. Either you protect others and you use your experience to help others so they never experience that, or you find the pecking order and you find someone else to like berate. So... I'm really grateful that my faith led me to doing things for others instead of um, internalizing the homophobia and the pain. Part of the reason we made Plague was to mine the wisdom of Catholics who ministered through the height of the AIDS crisis in the U.S. I wanted to capture these stories before it's too late. But I was also curious to learn how LGBT Catholics made their dual identities work. Why did they stay? What kept them in a church that could at times be so hostile to their very being? You know, we have saw plenty of parents who rejected their children and stuff, but I've also seen the parents who have embraced their children when they were dying or they were gay or whatever. So I constantly go back to that in our human state. We're not able to understand it completely, but I have that faith and confidence that we're going to be okay and that God does love us. And, you know, what makes my sin greater than anyone else's? Their greed or killing people and then they're heroes. But I'm, you know, going to hell because I love someone. 
It's not that Michael doesn't believe in judgment. It's just for him, God's love is bigger. That's the one thing I have the confidence in, is that God loves me. We can't imagine what God's like. God's going to be petty over who I love? No, I think God will judge us more on, if, we, if there is to be judgment, more on how we've hated and hurt each other than how we've loved each other, whether it be physical, spiritual, emotional, whatever. Love is it. And if we're expressing love and we're expressing kindness, that's what it's about. Over the course of my research, I was tempted to lament that homophobia inhibited the Catholic workers' response to HIV and AIDS. I was sad to read about Dorothy Day's discomfort with gay volunteers. But stopping there would have obscured the full story. Carl Cicillano said that when it came to sexuality, the movement felt paralyzed following Dorothy's death. But he also said that there was something about the movement Dorothy started that prompted him and other Catholic workers to respond to the AIDS crisis with love and compassion. We came here to put love in practice, you know, and, and where is love needed right now? And we saw that, that the people dying of AIDS and the people who were being beaten up in the streets and the people who were having their rights disparaged and persecuted needed to be protected. The Catholic worker really taught me how to put love into practice. Dorothy died in 1980, before HIV and AIDS became a public health crisis. It's impossible to know how she would have reacted. But Carl said he believes Dorothy's response would have been messy and complicated, but ultimately charitable. I believe that if the 30-year-old Dorothy who founded The Catholic Worker had founded it in 1986, she would have seen the suffering of people with AIDS and the suffering of gay people being beaten and murdered in the streets as being part of the face of the suffering Christ. And she would have responded as she always responded to the suffering Christ with love, with compassion, and with mercy. She wouldn't have turned away. But the point of it is, is... As I sat with Nick and Michael and listened to their stories, my eyes wandered across walls of Catholic iconography. And of course, the dozens of ceramic tiles, each marking a guest who had lived and died with the friends of Dorothy. They said there was one more piece waiting to be displayed. We actually have a papal blessing from this Pope. And um, it's not up on the wall, it's in the box. It's an ivory sheet of cardstock with an image of Pope Francis. And it reads, the Holy Father Francis cordially imparts the requested apostolic blessing to Michael DeSalvo and Nicholas Orth directors and guests of Friends of Dorothy Catholic Worker House in Syracuse, New York. Is, is another example of hanging in there, not giving up who we are, being like, you know, fiercely gay and loving, but also firm. Don't dismiss us for who we are. And don't dismiss us just because of the nice work that we do or anything else. Look at us as what we are. They've had the blessing for a few years. It was given to them in 2018. But they've yet to find a place to hang it in their home. It struck me that there was something symbolic in the fact that this blessing is stored away, not yet adorning the walls of their home. For Nick and Michael, being gay and Catholic means living at the margins, never fully embraced by the institution. Still, they are some of the most Christ-like people I've ever met. And Pope Francis often says that Christ is found at the margins. How the Catholic worker movement responded to HIV and AIDS 
how the broader church responded, that's a debate for historians. But that history has to include Nick and Michael's response, and the Friends of Dorothy volunteers, because they too are the church. Plague, Untold Stories of AIDS in the Catholic Church, is a production of America Media. I'm your host, Michael O'Loughlin. This series was written and produced by me and Maggie Van Dorn. The executive producer is Sebastian Gomes. Thanks to the team at America Media who helped make this episode happen. Sound design by Rebecca Seidel, original music by Christopher McCormick, art by Sean Tripoli and Allison Hamilton, Parts of this episode were recorded in the William J. Loeshirt Studio at America Media in New York. This podcast was made possible through the generosity of Mark A. McDermott and Yuval David, whose gift honors and supports all LGBTQ persons and allies past and present. Special thanks to Colleen Dully, William Critchley Menor, Ricardo Da Silva, and the Friends of Dorothy guests and volunteers who shared their stories. For more about this episode, visit americamag.org slash plague. And let me know what you think by following me on Twitter at Mike O'Loughlin. Thanks for listening. And finally, if you've enjoyed the podcast and want to support Plague and all the work we do at America Media, the best way to do that is get a digital subscription. Go to americamagazine.org slash subscribe. Thanks for your support.